want to eat you corn. I really want to eat you corn with your ears so long, my corn. Welcome to the Vegetable Beat Podcast. This is um, a rebroadcast of a recording that I made at the Great Lakes Expo where uh, we had a combined session on sweet corn and beans. And in that session, we had four guests uh, lined up to talk about pests that had no legs at all, meaning diseases, um, no weeds, unfortunately. And we had a guest to talk about vertebrates like birds and uh, deer and things two legs four legs and then we had our, an entomologist talk about six-legged bugs uh, and problems associated with those on on those two different crops so it was a little bit of a different design and feel of a session it included some musical interludes and things to mix things up and it's a bit of a long one because it's a whole two-hour session but we recorded it and there's some good stuff in here so um, I hope you enjoy, and stay tuned for more episodes of The Vegetable Beat coming later this spring. Have a good one. Welcome to the Sweet Corn and Beans Succotash Session. This is a different session. This is not a regular session. Uh, this is named after this dish, succotash, which is like a stir fry with corn and beans, usually. Okay. And like a stir fry, you can do whatever the heck you want. So that's what I'm doing in this session, doing whatever the heck I want. And over the last couple of years with COVID, without having in-person meetings, we've had to get kind of weird and creative with how we did things, with outreach and all that. We made a podcast called The Vegetable Beat. You can listen to it at glveg.net slash listen. In that experience and working at that format, I started to pick up my guitars again, which I hadn't done in like 10 years. And... Uh, making stupid songs like that off of songs somebody else wrote. It's easier that way. That was George Harrison. Uh, anyway, this session's gonna be a little bit like uh, a late night television show. All right, I've got a few guests. We're gonna interview them. And, uh, and uh, I've got cards on your chairs there. And I was gonna have a helper, but they called in sick. So uh, when we have time for questions, you just, We'll do it like regular questions, and I'll just kind of reread it into the mic down there, because I'd like to get a recording of the questions, too, if you've got any. And um, that's how we're going to roll with it. And our first guest is Marty Chilvers. I'm going to sit down there, and you're going to sit over there, and we'll, we're going to talk about the first set of things. Marty, Marty. For those of you who don't know Marty, this is not a typical place for to see him. 
Marty's a field crop pathologist. He works with corn and beans, but for you know grain. Not so much on the fresh market side, but he is happy to be here, and uh, I'm happy he's here because he's got the best info that I know of a couple of important diseases, one in particular for corn, and then also on beans. So Marty, I'm gonna flip the slide here to show us, we're gonna start with corn. Does that sound good with yeah, you? Yeah, sounds great. Thanks for being here too. <laughs> no worries. So I put up on the slide a couple of uh, pictures that are just uh, fairly typical pictures of two of the sweet corn diseases that we wanted to get into today. And I thought we could start with tar spot. It's, that's your bread and butter, Marty. <laughs> Um, what can you tell us about it Sure. with the sweet corn angle, right? Harvested at a different time than grain crops? Yeah. Well, how long do we have, I guess, right? We can chat for quite a while around tar spot, I guess. Um, and I did speak at this, this meeting a couple of years ago where okay. tar spot was just starting to show up. Um, it's definitely spread, you know, throughout the state now this year. It's, it's in every, pretty much every county. Um, it... It's a recently introduced disease, um, and so we're still learning things about it. Um, it's been in the US since 2015. Um, the last time we had a major outbreak was in 2018, and we had a really big issue that year because we had a lot of water that year. It was very wet during the summer, right? Uh, 2019 and 2020 were pretty dry for the most part during the summer, so we didn't see that much of the disease. And the other thing that's been happening is that this disease, because it's been recently introduced, in 2018, it was really only a problem on the west side of the state. But now, you know, it's spread all the way across the state. You know, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Ontario are all having issues with this disease as well. Um, and it was wet again this, this last season. And so, you know, we had some fields that are really quite badly devastated. You know, we're talking 50 to 100 bushel yield losses is what we're hearing. On the grain. Yeah, on the yeah. grain side of things, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Uh, I know some folks on the east side saw it. Dwight, you you told me how you saw pictures of it. Um, and I, I don't know if you saw it at your place at all, but you called me. Yeah. So I think what's unique about this for sweet corn is uh, the picture in the middle there shows that the lesions can get on the the, the ear husk, it's the, ear, the ear wrapper itself, which can mm -hmm. affect marketability. Mm -hmm. So um, when do we usually expect to see it in the state? So we, we first start picking up disease at uh, the beginning of July, but typically that's pretty low on the plant, the lowest sort of green leaves, and then it's going to move up uh, during the season. I'd, I'd say, you know, we don't really see stuff starting on the husks until about August, I'd say, and I'm looking at my technician, Adam, over there. He's nodding away. He agrees. Um, you know, it, it just sort of gets started in July, but the problem is it's sort of, you know, it goes through many life cycles, in, it only takes about 10 to 14 days, somewhere in there, to go through a life cycle. So you get this really rapid exponential growth of this disease. Um, and, you know, August is a time when it really starts to explode. You've had enough of that sort of low-lying development to really start ramping it up and moving it up through the foliage. So August is when it really starts to explode. Okay. How have uh, growers been handling it when they start to see it? Um, I mean, I think... For both sweet corn and grain corn, you know, variety resistance, um, hybrid resistance is going to be absolutely critical. It's going to be your first line of defense. Um, and then fungicide application um, and a well-timed fungicide application. So if we're talking grain corn, we, 
you know, if we have to schedule that aircraft today for next year, and we're only going to do one application, I'd probably put that on around about brown silk timing. But, you know, it depends. And some fields certainly have benefited from a second application. Okay, so in some cases, just one application will do it. Uh, okay, let me back up. So again, grain corn, okay, you know, we, we right. can see a 50 bushel protection from that one application. Okay, and so grain corn goes a lot longer than sweet corn. Right, right, okay. right. So, so sweet, with sweet corn getting harvested well in advance of grain corn and the disease coming in much later in the season, there'll be years, which we've already seen, where there's no problem at all and some where you start to see right. a little bit yep. and, maybe, and maybe one app could lick it, maybe. Depending on the pressure, perhaps. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think it really depends. Yeah, on yeah, obviously, like I said, the year and how much pressure is in that that area, and then your production practices too. You know, are you irrigating? Because that really that anything that drives leaf wetness is going to help drive disease. Okay. Yeah. Um, what are some of the ingredients that have been working? Is there any resistance issues, or is it like new enough that? It's new enough. Okay. Yeah, we're really concerned about fungicide resistance because of the multiple, um, you know, cycles of reproduction that this thing goes through. Um, yeah, so that's a major concern. But pretty much all modes of action that we typically use work. Okay, so something like flint or a tebuzol or a tebuconazole or something like that? Would... Uh, yeah, yes, yes. We have some fungicide efficacy data that's up on the crop protection network. Okay. So CPN. Google, yep, CPN, the Crop Protection Network, Google that. We've got a, a tag for corn, get in there, and then we've got a fungicide efficacy chart that we update um, every single year. Okay. And rank those different products that are, are labeled. I, I only mention those two because I know they're commonly used for something rust, usually. If rust comes in right. early, then that, that you can usually hold it off, you know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think my understanding in the sweet corn, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong here, but very often you're making an application to try and manage for rust, and there may be two or three applications, fungicide applications, because of that. If so, that may assist. But, yeah, it's going to be one two, to watch just because it is new. One seems like a lot to me okay. for sweet corn, mm -hmm. but it depends on the year. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's a little bit of tar spot for you. Any questions on tar spot that you'd like to add into the mix? Or comments? Okay, so the, so the questions on retreatment interval for a, a late season harvest, what, what could that be in a heavy pressure year? So, I mean, I think it depends on how much pressure is in that field, right? If you're obviously seeing tar spot in that field and you want to keep those husks clean, uh, we're probably talking every three weeks or so, potentially. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, sir. Questions um, about an app called TarSpotter, a phone app? Okay. Yeah. Um, so um, TarSpotter is something that's been pretty recently developed. Um, it's sort of coming off the same platform as Sporecaster for white mold uh, risk prediction, and that's something maybe we'll touch on in a minute with the snap beans as well. Um, yeah, so it's just using logistic regression of like weather parameters to try and figure out what is the risk of disease developing. Um, it doesn't tell you if you've got the disease present in your field or not, just like what has the weather been over the last, I think they're using the last 14 days. And essentially a lot of the parameters driving in that model are leaf wetness um, parameters. So they're using, um, I think it's IBM weather data that's sort of cloud driven and positioned, you know, every two kilometres is a different point of data that's being pulled in for that. 
And so they're using parameters of leaf wetness, so relative humidity, I, I guess rainfall projections, those sorts of things. There's a lot of those sort of parameters pulled in to, to drive, okay, okay, we've seen this much moisture, we think the risk is at this level. So it's not really like a reporting tool, it's a, it's a modeler. Modeler. Okay, I got you. Okay. Well, I'd like to move on to another popular corn disease. It's not really popular, I guess, but it happens every year. It loads of questions every year, and I bet you can guess it based on the picture up there. It's called smut. It's kind of an ugly thing. Gets on the ears, gets everywhere. Really, it can come out the stalk. It can come out of the tassels. Sort of a mysterious bugger. Um, would you like to help me demystify it? Learn more about it? Sure. Uh, it's another um, fungal disease. Um, and surprisingly, I, I'm not as familiar with this disease. I mean, we deal with it in, in um, um, grain fields as well, but it's, it's typically not a substantial issue as it would be in sweet corn. So it's a fungal disease, but surprisingly to me, you know, a lot of fungicide products don't seem to have efficacy, or at least in the trials that have been conducted, people don't report efficacy for control. Um, any, any type of stress, mechanical injury, wounds um, are going to favor disease development. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I've seen – well, I, I was reading a lot about it as people ask me about it. It comes and goes certain times a year. It's more prevalent. Last year in particular, mm -hmm. it was very tied to variety. Other years mm -hmm. I don't seem to – or I didn't ask the right questions. I don't know. But last year the variety called Kickoff mm – -hmm had it bad across mm -hmm. the whole east side. Uh, I don't know what it was like on the west side or outside of Michigan, but that's what I was learning. Mm -hmm. And I thought, because it's an early variety, it's often planted before the frosts are done. A lot of the kickoff regional, region-wide got a little frost nipping. And mm -hmm. I'm curious if that could be an entry point. But that's quite a long time between then and ear set. And so I don't think that's really what did it. But seems to be a variety susceptibility at least. Right. And if we're talking, trying to manage any disease, you know, variety selection is very, like, that should be your number one go-to. So if you've been dealing with a specific issue, see if there's a better variety in terms of disease resistance. Um, most sweet corn growers plant several varieties. And the, mm -hmm. uh, I hope you all, if you haven't, if this is a new crop for you, plant several varieties, see what works for you uh, across a couple years and uh, go with what seems to do well. Um, and I can't avoid this part about smut. It always comes up when you read about it. Some people like to eat it, and depending on your market savvy, depending on your market base, I don't know if there's opportunities or not. Uh, I see a lot of head shaking out there. It's a tough sell, but I have eaten it. You got to make sure you got some water ready because it dyes your teeth pretty bad. Yeah, it gets all stuck in your teeth and stuff. It's black. It's like a, it, yeah, it's not that great. Uh, okay, so variety selection is about the most you can do. Uh, if you do see some that comes up, it could be weather-related, could be variety-related, but fungicides don't tend to help. I think that's the conclusion mm -hmm. we can come up with mm -hmm. there. All right, let's move on to some beans. You want to move on to beans? Sure. Got some pictures of a couple of um, important diseases there. Oh, maybe I should ask, is there any other part of corn diseases that you'd like to get some answers about? I've outside got, of just those two, and we'll see if we can handle it. I've got a question as well for the yeah. sweet corn growers here. You know, have they seen any quality issues? Apart from the, um, the obvious blemish on the husks, have you seen any effect of tar spot on sugar content or any other sort of quality parameters? I know it affects test weight in um, grain corn and 
it's terrible on silage as well. It you know basically yeah hmm. affects quality. But any comments on that from any sweet corn producers? To change the taste that you know of. Okay. Good. Yeah, that is good. Um, I know some folks will sometimes cut the tips off the ears of corn with the worms are bad. Some people will husk. Suppose that could be something to do, remove the wrapper leaves, just a couple, or something like that. Oh, of course, it's a labor expense. There could be something to do <clears throat> if you've got some spots on the outer husk, potentially. All right, so we got a couple of bean diseases that we thought would, would be worth discussing. First one is, um, is white mold which you hear a lot about in soybean production, dry bean production, and it can also occur in our green beans, as well as like every other vegetable crop. It's a super promiscuous disease, and many crops get it. What can you tell us about, about it, Marty? Sure. So, I mean, it's probably important just to understand how this thing survives in the soil, and, and probably most of you are aware of that, right? So it forms those sclerotia resting bodies. Now you might be able to see that in the top left picture there, some sort of black bodies that are starting to form. It looks like mouse or rat droppings. Um, and that's the survival structure of the fungus and a place where that can um, be sort of released the next season. So they fall into the soil and they can survive for many years in the soil. Uh, but when conditions are right and you've got a certain uh, canopy coverage, then they'll form and make these little mushrooms where you get spore production, right? And the infection point is primarily through flowers or dead leaf material. Um, so that's that's where things are going. And th that's, that's important to know if you're trying to manage it, um, even in terms of tillage, you know, if you're trying to do long-term management of a field. Uh, really the best thing to do after a heavy white mold outbreak would probably be to no-till some wheat or something into that because wheat's a non-host, non right? Okay. And you should be... If you can no-till it, you'd leave those sclerotia on the soil surface when they're not going to survive as well as if you till them into the ground. You till them into the ground, now you've prepped that problem for the next two to four years, right? Something like that, maybe a little bit longer even. Okay. Well, that's a cool tip. Mm. Um, what you said about flower infections reminds me that I have seen it quite often in hoop house tomatoes and not where you might expect because you think it's a flower inf infection but oftentimes I'll see it at the crotch of branches and stems and the infection spreads uh, through the stem and then sometimes it gets re renamed timber rot depending on the crop that it's in because it infects the stem and then kind of collapses the whole plant. But um, what's likely happened is that the flowers were infected, the fl blossom drops, whether because of the disease or because the tomato matured, um, the flower drops, it gets stuck in the crotch of the plant and then it infests from there. I see that really often. So if, uh, yeah, I think that's that another way I see that it. That happens in our soybeans too, I think. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, uh, what about contans? Have you heard of that? Yeah. <laughs> that seems like another so, fall thing. I'm, la I'm laughing because we, I twisted the arms of my technicians to set up a field trial and we had to buy like 600 pounds of weight to put on this planter because it's not a no-till planter. Anyway, we did this great big setup and um, I didn't get any white mold mushrooms. And I think it's because they had so much corn residue on the surface that I, we just blocked them out. So, hmm. so I had this massive trial set up. I was looking at atrazine, which is a herbicide, right? And there's some evidence that atrazine can affect the way the spores are produced and make them non-viable. 
but also had strips of contans in there and the whole thing was awash because they had so much corn residue. Shoot. So now we've got a tillage plus a contans and atrazine and metribuzin and oh. trial. So it's, okay. it's more complex. So we have to wait yet another year to try and get data. Okay. <laughs> and so for those of you who have not heard of contans, it's a biological product that's marketed as, uh, as something – the label – is written such that you apply it in season um, and it's supposed to eat the little black nuggets that the, that they make but in the season then black nuggets are like reawakening um, and so I'm not sure what kind of effect it has yeah and I've heard of other people who have tried it an off-label use where it's not like a, a non-legal rate or anything but they just apply it in the fall basically mm-hmm. on non-crop though there's no crop there they just put it in in the fall incorporate it with those little nuggets sure. and they think it's, it has worked better. But so, I don't have the evidence. So Yeah, so contans, it's, it's a biological, it's another fungus. And this fungus parasitizes those white mold sclerotia, those little black nuggets, as we're calling them. Um, so it just basically parasitizes them, kills them, and that's, that's how it has efficacy. Um, we have done some trials, some predecessors have done some trials and shown that, yeah, it, it works. Part of the problem is... You only need a few of those sclerotia in the soil to produce spores and, you know, get infection of the next crop. So there's certainly plenty of evidence to show that by applying that contents, you can reduce the number of sclerotia in the soil, but you only need a few to initiate disease again. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, there's another picture up there. It's actually a a few pictures wrapped together. It shows some bean. Oh, yeah. James. James, what's up? The question is, can you reliably use uh, weather timing uh, as a tool or variety maturity for um, as a management option? Yeah, so um, I, I guess we don't want you to put all your uh, what is it, eggs in one basket, right, in terms of maturity groups. Um, so there might be some good um, agronomic practice to having a slightly early maturity soybean if that's re- if we focus on just soybeans, right? Because then you can harvest those potentially, and you know stagger out harvest. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly, we have seen it hints of that occasionally. Those early maturing beans sometimes escaping white mold infection. Um, but I think more importantly than that, again, comes back to variety selection and making sure we've got the most, the best resistance available. But yeah, that, that's certainly the whole timing of it. And again, that's the, those talking about apps, the Sporecaster app can sort of help with that if you're going to go out and actively manage things in terms of a fungicide application. Can you talk a little bit about that Sporecaster app? Yeah, so it's similar to that task spotter. It's a similar sort of thing. Um, this is using 30-day moving averages of weather data and just trying to figure out like what has the temperature and some of those moisture components been in terms of the production of those uh, white mold mushrooms, essentially, oh, have okay. we met those conditions or not? So it's about it's kind of it kind of predicts the awakening of yeah. the of the black nuggets. Yep. And okay, so it's like a yep. biofix almost because once those are awake, they're they're just going to be around the rest of the season, right? Is that the idea? Yeah, I mean they're they're they'll have a, a life, you know, a certain number of spore releases, and they'll be done as well. But it's predicting when that's occurring. Okay. Yeah. And in terms of making that you know, management decision, you've probably got a three-week window to put that fungicide on. It's just helping you to optimise that timing. Is my risk really high? If so, maybe I'll go out and make that application. Okay, cool. Any other questions about white mould that you folks might have? Yes, sir. 
Can you el elaborate more on wheat as a non-host? Does it have to sure. do with uh, the living plant or just the straw and stubble? It's so I, c I could expand that a bit too. Um, so I, I'm talking about the wheat because it provides a canopy for those sclerotia. So I also said no-till, right? Because I wanted to try and keep those sclerotia on the soil surface. And then we plant that wheat to provide a canopy in the spring so that those sclerotia germinate, release their spores, but they don't have anything to infect because they, they, yeah, they don't infect you know, grass species. So you're flushing them into a yeah. place where they can't really live. That's right. You yeah, flush yeah, yeah. them and they're like, I got nowhere to go. So, so a twist on that too is um, cereal rye and roller crimping that. Um, so there's a group in, at Cornell that had done a study there and they'd roll a crimson rye and basically getting those, um, those mushrooms, or the, sorry, these black nuggets to produce their spores earlier than the soybeans or the, the snap beans were flowering. Okay. And so flushing them out prior to the, the flowers being there. And some colleagues of mine are, are trying to reproduce this in soybeans at the moment. Sort of like a stale seed bed for weeds, but with... The sporulation of white mold. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Did that answer that? Did you? Okay. Let's move on to this this other set of pictures here. The first picture uh, is the bigger one. It's beans that are looking sort of uh, sad. They're upright, right? But they've got some discoloration. They're a little stubby. And um, what it represents is a complex of soil pathogens that can affect beans at the root level. And there's a variety of pathogens that'll do it. And um, it can be a production limiter for early season beans, certainly, and at other times as well, if the weather conditions promote it. What diseases are we actually talking about, Marty? Yeah, so it certainly can be a complex. So what we would call water molds, so pythium species, um, and then true fungi, so fusarium and rhizoctonia. And it's important to know the, the difference because if you're, um, if you're using seed treatments, fungicide seed treatments, there's very, very different modes of action for water molds versus the fungi. It's basically plants and animals, very, yeah, very they're different. They're very different, mm -hmm. yeah. It's unfortunate they fall under the same umbrella of diseases because then they, they're right. treated the same very mm -hmm. often, but they're really different. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, what... <clears throat> This is a good question. You mentioned about seed treatments. I was going to ask you about seed treatments, whether or not they can help. Mm -hmm. Where with pythium being one of the non-fungus, it's the uh, it's the oh. other kind of disease that many fungicides don't work against. Which ingredients have you seen in seed treatments that do work for something like pythium? I think or Phytophthora is another one. Yeah. Um, so methanoxam or metalaxyls, um, one of those products has been around for about 40 odd years. Um, and we went checking for fungicide resistance there and we didn't find any, thank goodness. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Uh, but there's a number of other products out now from, uh, from a number of different companies, um, oxythiopiprolin. Okay, um, Arondis is a common trade name for that, oxythiopiprolin. Mm -hmm. Okay. Intego. As a seed treatment, though? Oxythiopiprolin? Yep. Is yep. that right? I have yep. not seen that, but it, the field crops get labeled for different stuff. Yeah, it's probably more of a soybean okay. product. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and how about on the fusarium and rhizoctonia? What sort of seed treatment ingredients are common 
that would work for those? So typically we're looking at DMIs, um, maybe SDHI as well. Can you um, oh. tell me what those mean? <laughs> Uh, fluxopyroxide. I've got some industry people in the front. Fluxopyroxide. I've heard that one. Okay. <laughs> but there's, there's a number of different products there. Okay. And pretty, I mean, if you look at a soybean label, it's, it's going to contain, even from you know, different mm -hmm. um, seed brands, it's going to contain similar modes of action chemistries. Yeah, there's a, there's a really common seed treatment on many vegetables called Farmore. Um, I forget which company tends to put it into their seeds, but uh, they the default far more is usually two fungicides, sometimes three, and then the higher number you get, there's like far more 300, far more 400. I think once you get to 400 and above, that means there's an insecticide included as well. Mm -hmm. But the base is at least two fungicides, like true fungicides. And so those would work for Fusarium and Rhizoctonia, I think. Hey, this is uh, Future Ben here, just to correct my errors on that whole rambling about seed treatments. Far more is produced by Syngenta, and the base formulation comes with three fungicides. Two of them are true fungicides. The third one is uh, mephanoxum, which is a fungicide that works on some of those oomycetes like Pythium and Phytophthora. But even if you have a seed treatment mm -hmm. and the conditions are good for some of these root rots to take hold, um, I, is there like a, what's the, what's the limit for the time that these are actually conferring, you know, help to your plants? So I think for most products, depending on the product, we're talking, you know, a couple couple of weeks at most in couple general. Weeks. It really does depend though. Um, we, we've seen some seed treatments that confer a benefit out to um, mid-August, right, in terms of suppressing the amount of wow. fungus that's able to grow in that, in that root system. That's a long time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, how long do you guys typically keep your green beans in? How many picking, like uh, several pickings, of course, but at time, how long is that? Two months, three months? Two rows of beans picked six times. And uh, about how many weeks does that equate to? <laughs> yeah, you think of them in terms of picks instead of weeks, I understand. Six times. Well, I think that could easily be easily be two months, maybe three. Okay. Well, um, are there any questions that y'all have for Marty on any on any of these uh, bean diseases or additional bean diseases? How much does it have to do with soil inoculum versus weather for these root diseases? So um, there was an interesting example that came up this year in terms of the importance of field history and thinking about rotations and, and what you're doing in that field. So it was an irrigated field. It was, we're talking about dry beans, right? So pretty closely related to snaps. Um, they had not run the pivot this season, but there was very, very clear root rot under the pivot compared to outside of the pivot. Right. So okay. really that, that just gets back to like what have, what have you been doing over the years in terms of promoting an environment for root rots by pushing the water? And you probably get in a situation where you're chasing your own tail, right? The beans are starting to wilt because of root rot and so we water and then we keep probably driving up pathogen load that way. So crop rotation is very, very important. It might not be apparent, but it's a very, very important piece of the puzzle. And then, yeah, I mean, heavy downpour. I mean, we've, we've lost plenty of, I mean, you, you all have lost 
you know, plantings before, right? Yeah, heavily driven by environment. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Marty. Give him a hand. All righty. Well, our next guest is, uh, his name is James Decker. He comes down here from the Upper Peninsula Research and Extension Center, and he's going to be talking to us about animals. <laughs> Welcome, James. Thanks, Ben. 50 bucks to anyone that can guess the connection on that song. Really? 50? <laughs> Nobody's going to get it. That's why I said 50. <laughs> <laughs> well, I gave you the answer before I played the song. Oh. James is here to talk about the animals. The animals <laughs> recorded that song. <laughs> Thanks. You saved my pocketbook there. <laughs> so we're going straight over to the uh, two-legged and four-legged pests with James here. James, um, thank you for coming. And uh, I wanted to, this, this is going to be an interesting discussion. There's going to be some philosophy involved here. Tons, and yeah. The first question I have is, uh, many of you have heard the term integrated pest management or IPM. And some of the tenets of IPM is trying to prevent problems from happening. And then as they occur, try to figure out when you actually do take that action based on economics. And if I had to, if I had to summarize it more briefly than that, I would say with insects, you can react. They're there, then you do something about it. You can prevent some stuff, all right? But that's how you do it. With diseases, there's a whole lot more focus on prevention. And then reaction's a little tougher because the plants get it. They've got it. They're inoculated. Uh, you can only s kind of stem the spread. Weeds are kind of in both camps. You can do a lot of prevention. You can also do treatment of weeds as they are growing. Where do wildlife fall into this spectrum of prevention and reaction? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, wildlife are kind of unique as a pest complex. And a lot of times we don't even talk about them in the context of pest management, right? It would be really easy to organize a corn and bean uh, pest session and just talk about weeds, insects, diseases. Those are the kind of the common ones. Um, but when I go around and talk to folks about wildlife damage, I really – uh, couch it within the terms of integrated wildlife damage management and the concepts of, of IPM for a couple of reasons. Um, for one uh, is the human dimensions aspect and kind of the complexity of managing wildlife as pests. And this is the, the figure that I love to share with people. This is actually from a publication uh, out of the 1950s talking about white-tailed deer in Michigan. And, and what it's intended to illustrate is the different way that people envision wildlife or value wildlife. And, you know, um, this could be different stakeholders out there, right? Maybe hunter versus farmer versus nature lover. Um, but the, the other challenge 
interesting aspect of this kind of uh, complex valuation of wildlife is the fact that we can all wear multiple hats when we're thinking about wildlife, right? So farmers oftentimes that I work with, um, you know, during the growing season, they are, are thinking about deer like the picture on the far right there. And then come November 15th, whoop, different hat goes on suddenly I'm a hunter and they're thinking about deer in a different way so that that complexity and the value-laden nature of managing wildlife is I think an important reason for uh, emphasizing IPM um, of course multiple control tactics are, are another big important one we don't really have a lot of great tools for managing wildlife pests on the farm or I should say efficacy wise we don't have say pesticides that are going to give us 95 percent deer control or 98 percent deer control that we can achieve with chemical uh, tools for other pest complexes mm -hmm. so uh, efficacy is a challenge yeah the you, other I've heard you talk about how um, spraying for other problems, weeds, diseases, insects, whatever, it's often considered, you know, somewhat of a last resort depending on your philosophy on it, but usually very effective. It's like, yeah. it's like, it's going to work, Yep. but not usually the case when it comes to wildlife. No, um, we've, we've done a, a little bit of uh, wildlife repellent testing in different contexts, mostly uh, kind of like uh, Marty's circumstance in field crops, um, but a little bit in ornamentals as well. And what we find is that um, efficacy for wildlife repellents is very contextual. So it really depends on population density. It depends on application timing, uh, which it can be the case in other pests as well, but um, it also really depends on what alternative food sources are out there for the wildlife to uh, go after if they're not going to eat your treated crop. Um, so yeah, you have a story about that, there. I think, about uh, some exclusion cages in different environments, don't you? Yeah, well, so it's not a chemical example, but yeah, we've, we've been doing some exclusion work to try to understand just, you know, damage versus undamaged plants and how to measure that and the impacts on yield and so forth. Um, and one year we were working in soybeans and we set up exclusion cages. We had eight or nine cages in a field. One of the fields was very remote, a small field, about six acres of soybeans. Um, and the very other food available in the neighborhood there, particularly not any other beans. Um, the deer ate every soybean plant in that six acres outside of the cages, and then they decided that they were going to go in those cages, and we're talking about, you know, uh, five by five, six by six foot squares of mesh netting, a place that a deer normally does not want to be, um, and they were going in there. So, yeah, it's all about... Generally about risk versus reward. So yeah. faced without other alternatives, they went into the cages as right. well. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, the last thing I'll say on the IPM point is that um, IPM is really about risk benefit, right? We're trying to minimize the risks of pests and pest management while maximizing the benefits and the returns to those to, to those processes. Um, and the risk-benefit calculations are much more complex when we're talking about wildlife, which is, a, I think, a reason to emphasize IPM. Because, um, you know, aphids, for example, or a, a pathogen, um, what's the benefit, right? I mean, what's the benefit? How is it enumerated if there is one? And who's out there advocating for the benefits of an insect or disease pest? <laughs> right. right. Nobody. Zero, so, generally. So... Um, 
On the other hand, wildlife are seen as highly valuable. Many of them are seen as desirable. We have stakeholder groups. In fact, we have entire organizations that are entirely designed to advocate for the, the conservation or increase in the population densities of some of these species and, and their value in terms of recreation, wildlife viewing, et cetera. So um, that, that complex risk-benefit risk calculation, the fact that we have human beings on either sides of that, that uh, scale, if you will, are another reason for IPM. And like you said, wearing both hats, where sometimes yeah. they're interested in killing all the deer because they're a problem on their property uh, just to get them gone, and other times, you know, wanting it to stack the freezer. Yeah, well, and just economics as well. I, I used to work in Presque Hill County in the northeast lower. We have bovine tuberculosis that is uh, hosted in the wild wild uh, deer herd. And, you know, growers there raising cattle in the TB zone, um, dealing with TB risk mitigation, the costs and, and things that come with that. And then they grow and sell deer bait to hunters <laughs> because it's an a, incredible economic opportunity. And, again, the kind of the way that we can – bifurcate our values and our our lives sometimes and wear those multiple hats so. yeah no that's really interesting the deer bait thing <laughs> so um as we were preparing for this you you wanted you wanted to know from the audience uh w sort of what their worst pest uh wildlife pest is would you still like to open that up sure yeah i'd be interested to hear about kind of what your challenges are your primary pests of concern and, and what crops what kind of damage they're doing and how you're addressing it if anyone's interested in sharing okay would anyone like to offer up what they're we can worth? do this survey style too raccoons in sweet corn yeah yep mm -hmm. uh -huh. yeah birds yeah birds birds what species of birds Yep. Starlings mm -hmm. and blackbirds, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mice and pumpkins. Mice and pumpkins, yeah. Rodents are, I would say, um, where we have some of the most work to do. They're really under undermanaged in many cases. There's one guy who, I can't remember this meeting or another, that we had uh, come out from out west who worked specifically on rodent damage, and he had some great ideas. But, man, we hear about rodent damage all the time in various crops and cropping systems, certain situations exacerbate it terribly like residue uh cover crop utilization reducing tillage and all that thing creating more habitat um but yeah they're they're a big one that we really have pretty limited tools on we don't have any trophy mouse hunters here do we yeah right well that's probably part of it yeah okay. <laughs> yes Dang. in the back there yeah we can do, do Was, you uh, did you say critters keeping birds. critter oh birds, birds yeah corn. yeah um okay well I have a feeling, because this is the sweet corn and bean session, and that birds are a big deal. Uh, should we? I'm not sure what the next slide is. I think it is the damage slide. Yeah. Here, here are several pests that uh, we're well aware of uh, being a problem in corn and beans. And I, I'll go um, sort of describe these pictures, because we'd like to make this into a podcast as well, and those people don't see the slides. But going from the top left there, we've got bird damage, pretty classic example of bird damage. They got the little talons and they kind of peel at the top of the ear there. Some say they're looking for the worms that might be in there, or some say they're just going right for the kernels. I'd say it's a mixture of both. Yeah. Uh, we also got some bird damage in peas. They can open up pods. Um, another picture of, over to the right is uh, some raccoon damage, which kind of further ribbon the husk, but usually go a lot farther. And what this picture doesn't show you is that 
the uh, the entire stalk is kind of bent over to the ground because mm-hmm. they kind of pull it down to themselves instead of you know climbing up it. They, they can't support their weight. And over on the top right is a picture of um, a border, a soybean border, which is <laughs> pretty heavily trimmed up by by deer. All right, right on the perimeter of a forest edge there. Groundhogs would do the same thing. Going over to the bottom left is some more bird damage. Anyone care to guess what kind of bird did that? Geese? Sandhill crane. Yeah. yeah. It's a pretty pretty thin stand of corn there. Uh, Has anybody witnessed this happening? Yeah? Who's got sandhill cranes in their corn? Raise your hand. Tell Tell me about it. Like when do they come in? What they come in? Are they at dusk, dawn, night, daytime? All day. All day. Yeah. They're just hanging they out there. Yeah, they're so daytime feeders. I, I've heard some people uh, hypothesize that that they they might be able to read tractor uh, tracks and know that okay, well this is just a, uh, you know where a where a tire went versus this is where the seeds went and they follow the row. Have you? Uh, can you bear that out? Have you seen something like that? I heard that for the first time this year from a grower that uh, they actually were starting to damage a crop before it was up. Usually it's a visual cue of the plants oh, emerging themselves. Okay. But but they are they have learned in some cases, yeah. I've uh, this is, I have had a similar experience but not with these crops. It was a research trial on pumpkins at the research center and uh, they uh, my pumpkins weren't coming up. They're coming up very spotty and I kept replanting and uh, I eventually started putting these little um, styrofoam bowls over because uh, I thought it was mice that's what I thought and I thought okay I'll put soil around them and it'll keep them out and then these little triangle bite marks kept showing up all over the styrofoam bowls and I was like <laughs> who is doing it because no one is around when I'm here so I, I ended up staying late and just camping in my car until dusk and what I realized was the whole time uh, I was out there the seagulls were on the power line watching so I mean mm. I didn't. I hadn't seen seagull problems before. I know they chase tractors that are tilling, and go after worms, uh, up in the bay especially. But I hadn't seen them go after seeds like that before. Yeah, yeah Dwight. I used Avapel on my corn seeds, and it okay. it didn't work that well. The company said the liquid doesn't work as well as the powder. Is that true? Yeah, I'm glad. I'm really glad you brought up Avapel. Um, so Avapel is a seed treatment repellent. It's uh, anthraquinone, I believe. And um, it can be quite effective. There are two formulations, like you say. There's a, a dry powder formulation that most people put on the seed themselves or put in the planter box. And then there is a liquid formulation that would be more of a commercial seed treatment. Um, I've heard the same story many times from growers about the dry powder. And there, it could be a couple of things. One is you know, rate um, and coverage can be a challenge with the dry powder. Sometimes you don't get as much coverage. The other thing is uh, it does, there's some anecdotal information suggesting that it doesn't stay on the seed as well once it's in the ground. So if you have a wetter spot in the field, we've had damage you know, located specifically in those areas, or if you get a bit heavy rainfall and a lot of washout, um, you can have some of that, that seed treatment come off the seed and it can be susceptible. But in general, uh, Avapel has been a really effective seed treatment for birds that are going after the seed and specifically sandhill crane. So yeah. it's labeled for corn, sweet and field, as well as rice, if anyone's growing rice, no. But um, 
And it was a it's 24, a, it's it was a a 24 C label for a while in Michigan. Do you know if that has changed? Is I believe it a, it's got a full, it's a full, full label, label now. now. Okay. Yep. Yeah, it was actually developed uh, in partnership with the International Crane Foundation um, out of Wisconsin. So it's got good science behind it. It's been available for a number of years, and it is a, a good product. There's a cost to it. Um, you know, and back to kind of the IPM concepts here, one of the things that I often talk about is ways – economic solutions basically for this problem. So if there's a constituency that wants more cranes on the landscape and farmers are bearing the cost of that through crop damage, um, maybe we can redirect some funds from those folks uh, that want to see the birds, you know, Audubon, Crane Foundation, whoever it may be, to, to the farmers to purchase a product like Avapel. Because it really is uh, thus far a pretty sustainable solution to this particular problem. Now, cranes do damage to other crops at other times of year. Um, and, and so it's not a perfect fix for bird damage by any means. And there's other birds that are doing other types of damage in corn. So it's one, one solution, but we need a lot of other ones too. What you just mentioned about um, leveraging the interests of conservationists to b help bear the costs of the damage to farmers is an interesting one to me. Do you have any other examples of those uh, working? Totally, yeah. So Wisconsin has a program that's been in place, I think, since the 1930s. It's called the Wildlife Claims uh, Damage uh, uh, sorry, Wildlife Claims uh, an Abatement Program, something like that. But anyway, um, what it does is they take hunter license dollars for game species that are causing damage on farms, namely deer, uh, uh, geese, and so forth. Cranes are not a game species yet in Wisconsin, like Michigan. Um, they take uh, about $3 million a year from, from those license sales, and they direct them towards uh, abatement measures, so fencing, repellents, etc., and then ultimately damage claims, basically insurance claims that uh, farmers can make against the state, and that is all handled through this through this program. So it's a really great example, I think, of an economic tool. It's been well utilized. The program has has expanded over the years, and um, it's not you know without issues. It's not a perfect solution, but it is a way to begin addressing these problems. So I think a program like that would be fantastic in Michigan. The closest thing that we have that's starting in Michigan right now is on the predator side. There's a nonprofit group that we've been working with who's interested in buying guard donkeys for <laughs> livestock producers in the Upper Peninsula that are having issues with losses to predators, namely wolves, but also other things like coyotes. So um, I work at the UP Research and Extension Center there in Chatham. We have beef cattle. We have uh, started to have some predator issues, and so we're looking at getting a couple of donkeys to help prevent that. So kind of these uh, way, ways of looking at sustainable solutions that address, address the uh, objectives of multiple stakeholder groups when it comes to wildlife management. Very cool. Very cool. Um, yeah, and I've, I've, I only have one example of something like that. And Lori, you're here in the room. And she, Lori's from a farm called Forgotten Harvest. And at one point, they got a grant from the World Wildlife Federation, I think, Ooh. to devise a deer management tool. Yeah. And, and I never would have thought that that would have been a, like a a grant source for a grower to pursue for deer control, but because they were working on something that was going to be a non-lethal option, WWF was like, yeah, yeah, here's some money. Why don't you make run with it? Yeah. I thought that was pretty interesting. I, I did not expect it. What was your tool? Well, we uh, lovingly call it a deer blaster. Mm -hmm. The deer blaster. <laughs> it doesn't sound non-lethal. <laughs> it is a high-pressure motion-sensored sprinkler. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. High-pressure motion-sensing sprinkler on a pallet. It's mobile. Yeah, keeping it novel. We wanted to try to set up a bunch of cameras, like, in a big semicircle to get, like, a bullet-time matrix 
shot of a deer getting blasted by the water, but we couldn't get it together. Yeah, I'm, I'm envisioning it. I brought awesome. a student to your farm this uh, this summer, and she triggered it, and it, it got her to move pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. And I like especially that, like you say, it was funded by World Wildlife Federation. I mean, that's, yeah, never that's fantastic. Thought. Those kind of collaborations are going to be critical in moving forward. Uh, I just had a couple other pictures here that I thought might be interesting to you. Uh, the one on the bottom is a picture of, of uh, a turkey crop. If you look closely, you can see feathers. And a person's hand is holding a bunch of soybean seedlings. So turkey is another one. It is a game species. Uh, that can uh, put a hurt on a crop, especially if you got a bunch of babies and they're all out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, corn, again, more deer, actually like taking half the cob off. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm kind of speaking to the choir on some of this damage here. Yeah. Regarding species doing damage, we did a survey in Michigan and some surrounding states uh, two years ago asking growers about wildlife damage, and deer by far number one. Uh, second category was birds, uh, and then when we broke that down in terms of migratory birds, songbirds, and so forth, um, you know, migratory birds um, were up there because of the cropping systems we were looking at, and songbirds kind of a close second. Um, all other species, you know, uh, turkeys and then other non-birds uh, or deer, really much minor, uh, much more minor in terms of the percentage of folks that are reporting them as, as doing a lot of damage on their farms. Yeah. Yeah, blackbirds are, can be a big one, particularly in sweet corn. Um, yeah, so we we kind of talked about cranes and and damage to the seed early in the season on on corn. On the back end, um, we've got blackbirds and and some other birds that are um, damaging the ear itself, right? Um, so some of the best work that I've seen done on that side of birds and corn is coming out of Cornell. And we actually had, I think it was the year before last, Marion Zwiffel, uh, who's one of the folks from Cornell that did that work. And we, we reached out to her this year. She wasn't available, unfortunately. But um, they had two treatments that really uh, looked great for them. Um, one was detasseling. So they went through and detasseled the sweet corn. And um, I don't know if it's more of a physical removing the perching spot or my, my sense is actually it's more of a visual maturity cue that uh, is throwing off the birds as they're looking for corn that's going to be the right maturity for them to want to feed on uh, if it doesn't have the tassel that they might not pick up on that or maybe a combination of the two. But detasseling was the best treatment that they had. Um, the second best uh, was uh, air dancer or uh, tube man, which is an inflatable tube uh, on a fan. You've probably seen them like at a used car lot. And um, they uh, basically are a dynamic scarecrow. And they also had quite good results with those. A little bit more challenging because you need electricity out in the field. Um, so a generator or a source of electricity keeps that thing running. Um, but great results with that too. And then I think they had a repellent was the third uh, treatment that they had in that particular setup. And that wasn't as good as the other two. So I think detasseling's uh, got a lot of uh, potential. So you got into some questions I was, I was going to get into there uh, with the basic categorizations of controls that we do have. We talked briefly about sprayable options before. Uh, I think you want to talk about it a little bit more. I thought you had a table up there that you wanted to... I yeah, think we, those are sprayable. Yeah, we can right? talk a little want, bit more, yeah. Okay, James has done a little bit of research on some of the sprayable options, and I believe this table is reflecting that. Oh, this is actually fencing. That's here. fencing. Yeah, okay, yeah. well, let's talk about that then. Let's okay, talk about let's exclusion. talk about fencing. <laughs> what can you tell me about it, James? 
Well, um, so fencing is, I would say, the gold standard. You know, we talked about briefly about lethal control, and some people kind of think about that as the gold standard, but I would suggest that in general, you can't shoot your way out of most wildlife damage problems, uh, simply because we don't have enough time or lead to, to really succeed with that. You can, with a concentrated lethal control program with many shooters over an extended period of time, put a dent in things. But really, uh, gold standard for control is exclusion. The issue is fencing is expensive, right? So I think you have to understand uh, the damage problem that you're dealing with in terms of the species causing damage, um, the crop that you're trying to protect and its value. And then you have to look at uh, some of these different ways that we can kind of measure um, success, if you will, in, in fencing. <clears throat> Whether we're talking about the cost of the materials and the installation, um, its actual design as far as height, longevity, maintenance that's gonna to have to go into it. What you find is that um, there certainly are trade-offs and you may not need 100% you know, exclusion, physical exclusion barrier to achieve your goals. And in fact, you may find that your, your sort of net return on exclusion is better with other types of fencing designs. So, um, and you know, uh, there is exclusion in and of itself, a physical barrier. There's also um, other, what I call like psychological barriers too. So you can layer physical exclusion with things like um, uh, depth. So in, in with deer, 3D fencing, you hear about that quite a bit. They're prey animals with the eyes on the side of their head. They don't have very good depth perception. Any fencing that has depth to it, multiple runs of fencing or an angled fence is going to add another la layer of protection. You can electrify that fence. You can electrify and then bait that fence to encourage them to come into contact with that fence. So there's ways to kind of layer different modes of control uh, on top of one another. And then just thinking about, you know, what, what are you really trying to accomplish? What resources do you have? And which of these uh, measures of success or, or uh, different ways of, of looking at fencing designs are going to be most important for you? So this is a table out of a paper by Verkater and et al. And um, if anyone is interested, contact Ben or me, and I can get you that paper. But it's a really nice breakdown of some of the different fencing designs and, and uh, how they compare. Yeah, that's pretty great. I know some folks here do have fences. Um, others may have temporary fences. I see that on there as, uh, as a viable option, one of the cheapest, but also the most high maintenance because the uh, deer rub up against them and then they bend and fall and things yeah. like that. Many, many people, I say too many people, um, defer fencing because of that initial capital outlay and it's a death by a thousand cuts, right? Every season you're losing 10, 20, 15, you know, uh, percent of, of your crop, and it doesn't take very many years and a high value crop to pay for that fence. Of course, it's capital out front, maybe you have to get a loan or something, but it really can pay back. The, the other thing on fencing uh, that I never really thought about before, and I don't know if many people do, is this concept of perimeter to area ratio. It's really quite simple in that um, the larger the area and the more square the design, the, the lower the perimeter to area ratio, meaning the perimeter, how much fencing material you have to buy versus the area that you're protecting inside the fence. So you can maximize your, your uh, investment by lowering that perimeter to area ratio by having large areas, by having square shaped areas or regularly shaped areas, and you can make your fencing investment go that much further. So think about that when you're designing fencing too. It's not just, well, I got this field, it's kind of wacky, but I'm gonna fence it in. No, like cut that tree line out and make a square because it'll, it'll really save you a lot of money. Yeah. Um, how about with um, like mechanical harassment options that need some sort of power source? Tell me about that. 
So mechanical harassment, there's a thousand options, right? What I call scare tactics. Um, one of them we just heard about, a water cannon uh, with motion sensor. That's great. I would, I would say that, like we discussed in, in that story, the key with scare, tactic, scare tactics is switching it up. So having multiple things out there and making them dynamic as much as possible. The thing about the air dancer, why it was better than a scarecrow, is because it, it moves around at random in random ways. And for the Cornell trial, they put it on the timer. So it would go down and then pop back up. So, you know, uh, that randomness is really critical to the scare tactics. We had a grower here a couple of years ago that talked about his scare tactics for deer, and he was doing wacky stuff, but it was working. So, like, you know, the owls, the owl effigies, everybody's got those, right? You put them out, you leave them out there for 10 years, they rot away, and you're like, that didn't work. Well, this guy gets those owl effigies, and then he puts them on, like, a 50-foot pole up in the air. So they're up with the birds that are flying that's around really above tall. the crop, and they're swinging around in the wind and stuff like that. And you think, wow, that's a totally different deal. Or he was using driveway markers uh, like predator eyes, and he would move them around the field, reflectors, huh. you know, things like that, a scent. So not just putting out a scarecrow, but I'm going to put, you know, some uh, – clone on on the on the scarecrow and you know animals are a lot of animals are, are prey animals are scent driven and so they're going to smell it before they even see it um deer you know deer are pretty much blind you can stand in front of them as long as you don't move they're not going to see you right but their noses are incredible much much stronger than ours so scare tactics are all about keeping it dynamic layering and doing things that are novel right that are going to be unusual for, for that that animal's experience uh, you had mentioned about sense, uh, and you earlier we talked about avipel, or was it avipel? Yep. Yeah, the avipel mm -hmm. out the sea treatment. There's another pretty popular one, avian control, which yeah. is a scent-based thing. That's more for birds. What uh, what's that all about? So um, it, there's a there's a range of repellent products out there. Avian control is another one. Um, uh, MA, methylenthranolate, is another common uh, bird-focused repellent. So there are uh, some of these other repellent tools out there, not only for birds, there's some repellents for mammals. In fact, I have uh, pamphlets, I'm not a salesman, but I have pamphlets for two products that we've trialed personally, so I have experience with them. Um, one called Plant Skid, which is a blood-based blood repellent for vertebrates like deer in particular. And then um, oh, uh, another deer product out there. But anyway, the story on repellents is kind of what I, I said earlier. It, it really, in general, is about context. So you have, to, you have to get it right as far as the product and the species and the rate, the normal things that we talk about with chemical control. But um, efficacy is not as good in general on some of these wildlife repellent products. So um, it really has to do with context. The biggest thing that I've noticed is timing. With repellents, you have to be <coughs> applying the repellent before the damage ramps up. Once, in general, wildlife uh, become familiar with a food source and determine that it's a good food source and the surrounding habitat conditions are conducive to hanging out in that area, they're going to continue eating, and they'll continue eating through a decent amount of disturbance, including, in general, a repellent application. Okay. So getting out in front of damage with repellents is key. And then thinking about, too... Um, the, the timing of reapplication. A lot of them, you're looking at multiple applications. And you want to think about not only when damage is occurring, but when is that damage economic damage, right? Mm -hmm. And when is it really dinging the yield or the quality of your crop in a way that's going to hurt your pocketbook? 
Um, and then beyond that, it, you got to think at the landscape scale. So not just your crop in your field and how you're putting that repellent on, but what is your neighbor growing? What is the uh, adjacent land use in terms of wildlife habitat otherwise? Is there a deer camp next door that's you know feeding deer? Or is it maybe poor deer habitat that your field is the only food source in the area? Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of control over what happens around us on the landscape in many cases, but you really have to be thinking at the landscape scale and manage your uh, wildlife damage problem accordingly. Great, James. Uh, I think uh, one of the other. Bit, oh, what? Can you this tell is me what actually this is the slide in terms of uh, repellents. Um, this is an old publication here, just looking at some of the factors that contribute to deer damage. And the the way that I use this is simply to make the point that. Uh, Deer damage is a multifaceted problem, right? And there's many things that are going to change the amount of deer damage on your farm. Um, and similarly, the efficacy of any control measures that you put into place. So um, you, you really have to be thinking holistically or at the landscape scale, um, whether it's repellents or, or other tools that you might be using. Great. This is a lethal. Okay, this is, this is what I wanted to finish up with. So we're talking about all these harassment techniques, some repellents fences as an exclusion technique, it would, particularly as it comes to harassments, what a lot of harassments do is it, 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 has, it elicits a fear response in the animal. And fear only goes so far without like a real true threat of death. Consequences. Yeah. So <laughs> they grow out of it. They get used to it unless you mix it up. And of course, one of the things you can mix up is like actually shooting them. Um, so I was wondering, James, what can growers kill and who needs to know about it? Yeah, it's a great question. It's kind of maybe the first question that we feel oftentimes from folks is like, how can I kill this, right? <laughs> um, so important to know that wildlife species are managed by different agencies depending on what they are. Um, the two big players are DNR, De Department of Natural Resources, at the state level for game species. Those are species that have a hunting season. Um, versus uh, species that are managed at the federal level, namely migratory birds and a, a few other ones. Um, so we put a publication together. There's a couple printed copies. It's also available online. You can just uh, Google, do I need a permit to control wildlife on my farm? Um, and it's an extension article. This table is the main piece of that article. And it simply lays out uh, who has jurisdiction over a, a species or a category of species, whether or not a permit is required uh, to remove that species. Um, and so it, it's a really important tool just to stay compliant in terms of regulations. But maybe beyond that, um, to understand kind of the, the jurisdiction and how the relationships and oversight of these different wildlife populations function. Because when you as a farmer have a problem, the best thing that you can do is to reach out to the management agencies and inform them, educate them about the problems that you're having, what you've tried, and then look into what solutions they offer. Most cases for wildlife doing damage on the farm, there are permits that you can get for lethal control. That is true for game species, that is true for migratory species. Really, it's only pretty much like endangered species that you're not gonna be able to, to remove. The, the problem is, is that these regulations are interpreted differently at the local level depending on the representative of whatever agency you're working with. Okay. So I hear stories all the time. I went to DNR, you know, they came out, looked at my problem, they wouldn't give me permits. Or, okay. you know, I talked to, D, I had a story before we started today from a, someone that was going to be joining the session. They have crane problems, they went to DNR, DNR said, oh, nope, we're not going to give you tags. DNR does not 
give tags for migratory birds. They have no jurisdiction. So for DN, you know, that was either confusion on the part of that agent or somebody basically trying to put an obstacle in place for that grower, hmm. not saying, oh, actually, that's Fish and Wildlife Service or uh, USDA Wildlife Services that are responsible for helping you with that problem. So you really have to be your own advocate. You have to understand how these agencies function. And if you don't get service from an individual within that agency, you need to go to the next person above them in that agency or the appropriate agency if you're in the wrong place and and continue to to seek that that assistance because there are programs and, and tools in place you have a right to access them it's just you get a different story sometimes depending on who you encounter because again this is a values driven thing a lot of these people are in conservation because they they want to see these species on the landscape that's great so do i i don't want to see you know, uh, animals, animals entirely extirpated from, from the landscape either, but we have to be able to make a living in agriculture, right? So, um, you have to really work to advocate for yourself, uh, with, with these folks and, and see yourself as an educator because many of them don't know what you deal with on the farm in terms of wildlife. Great. I appreciate that, James. And I, I tried to make this slide readable. It's hard to read. So James was great and he printed out some copies back there. If you wanted a shortcut for, you know, what, and this is more Michigan specific probably than if you're here from Ohio or some other yes, place. Yes, this is just Michigan. Good point. Yeah. Particularly for the state level game species. Um, but the migratory ones would be, would be federal and across state lines. Yeah. Okay. You guys have any other questions for James while we got him up here? Yes, sir. I had someone from the DNR come out to look at my crop damage and they issued me five permits that I could use between dusk and midnight. And it took them about three weeks to to get me that. Oh, yeah. What do you think of that? Interesting. I hadn't heard about the, the time limit aspect. Certainly the, the timeliness or lack thereof um, can be a challenge. Uh, I, I would, uh, not, to, not to say it, they don't hold some of the responsibility for that particular scenario, but one thing that we need to realize as growers is that we have to treat wildlife damage like any other pest management. So uh, the tendency is to be reactive. I understand. We like to think maybe it's not going to happen. Or some years, damage is greatly reduced depending on availability of wild food sources, what else is happening on the landscape, what your neighbors are doing, all these things. But we need to anticipate damage. We need to plan for wildlife damage. So you know, do you buy your herbicide the day you're going to spray for your weeds? Probably not, right? You're thinking, oh man, I need that chemical in the in the sh in the storage because I'm going to be spraying, you know, at the X time. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we need to we need to plan for wildlife damage management like we plan for any other pests. Um, you have to develop a relationship with some of these agency folks so that they know you, they know your history, they know what you've done for wildlife mm -hmm. damage management. I see. And then you know you call them on January 1st and say they're going to say, oh, it's Bob again. You know he's been shooting X number of deer and he's been turning the tags religiously and he's providing data back on the you know all these things. That relationship mm -hmm. is there. He's going to you know mail you 10 tags before the new year because. He knows that that's the way it goes. So, yeah, um, very common story. Um, and oftentimes those, those are challenging interactions that don't seem to be very helpful. Um, but there are ways that we can try to develop that relationship in anticipation of the damage year over year to, to hopefully have better outcomes for everybody. Okay. Any other questions for James? Yes, sir. I came in late. I've got a flock of turkeys that's causing me headaches what can you tell me about turkeys 
So, um, in, in general, when we look at all the wildlife out there in Michigan or the Great Lakes states, um, turkeys generally come in below some of the other key, you know, deer, crane, some of these other key ones, some of the birds. Um, but turkey numbers are increasing dramatically, right? I mean, everybody seems to be, I know I'm seeing more turkeys than I've ever seen in my lifetime. I'm 36 years old. Um, the numbers are increasing dramatically. The th other thing about these wildlife species that I think is so interesting, and this probably is true to some extent for other pest complexes, is how uh, intelligent and, and quickly they can adapt to different circumstances. And you'll find that populations in one area have learned that, oh, this crop or this farm or whatever it is, you know, this time of year is a good fit for us and they'll adapt to that and they'll start to use that food source or that resource. Um, so I think turkeys are maybe like an up and comer that mm -hmm. we're going to see more and more issues in more and more crops. So I guess be on the, be on the lookout for turkeys. Yeah. Okay. Yes, Dwight. On these newer style lasers, uh, yeah. how effective are those? How effective are lasers for birds? Is the yeah. Question. I, I personally don't have experience. I think it's an exciting area, um, and a lot of people are innovating in that direction. To me, it makes sense, um, but I, I haven't tried. I don't know if anyone in the room has tried any lasers in the back there. Yeah. Ooh. And that's uh, blackbirds and sweet corn? Yeah, wow, 70% uh, reduction. Is that the same pattern for the last two years, or do you have to change the pattern? Change them all the time. Okay. It's, to be able to Random. change the program more frequently seems yeah. like it would be advantageous. So you do you try to uh, start get, getting those rolling on uh, on fields that are silking or sometime after? Before silk, even. Okay. Yeah. A week before silk. Yeah. And that, yeah, and that principle applies, you know, all kinds of scare tactics, yeah. Cool. That's exciting. Seventy. I would say seventy percent reduction is on par with what we saw with the air dancer in our grain hemp this year. Um, about about the same. Great. Okay, folks. Um, I have two sponsors that I've got to get through here. So uh, we've got two very important sponsors. Gave us about a thousand million dollars. Um, first one is um, Fartless Beans. This session is sponsored by Fartless Beans. You've heard of burpless cucumbers. New from the breeders at Half-Baked Seed Company. Fartless beans provide 100% of the protein and fiber with 2% of the spider barks, moose calls, goose honks, bubblers, and one-cheek squeaks that you've come to expect from regular beans. Yes, you've heard it right. And the SBD trait package guarantees that emissions are untraceable and can be blamed squarely on the dog. And we've got one other sponsor that might be a little tricky to do. I might need a volunteer. I might need a volunteer. Sir, you're close. One of you guys, you look like you probably got a finger that could, like, hit a switch. That's all I need. Someone's got to hit a switch when I say go, and then hit it again when I say stop. All right? It's right next to you there. It's, uh, can you bend it? There's a switch. cable going into that yeah, device. Switch is on our side here. Don't, don't hit it yet. Don't hit it yet. Don't the, hit big, it yet. the big switch goes either up or down. Okay, which way does he have to push it when I say you go? You choose. You choose. Oh, it doesn't matter which way it goes? No, one's high and one's low. We'll let him choose. <laughs> okay. All right, all right, okay. Heavy metal, heavy metal, heavy metal, heavy metal. Tube man! Tube man! Two man, J.
James, you, go. James, go. Introducing the patented, patented heavy metal tube man. Inflate your tube man and deflate animal damage on your farm. Tube man comes packaged with a weatherproof inflator fan and sound system maxing out at 165 decibels. That's a sound level of a full throttle 747 of metal. Okay, hit it. Heavy Metal Tube Man. <laughs> Very important sponsor. <laughs> and our final guest, last but not least, Sophia Zendre from MSU as our entomologist specializing in vegetable crops. And uh, why don't you come on up, Sophia? bars are fun. There's your intro music, Sophia. Very sad. <laughs> Welcome, Sophia. Thanks for coming. Thanks for agreeing to this madness I've introduced to Expo. Thanks for having me, Ben. I think I was part of the ideas generation, so I'll take part of the blame. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they were encouraging of me. <laughs> okay, folks. So Sophia is here from MSU. There's a uh, slide with her name on it. Um, several pests, several insect pests of our beans, peas, and corn. Uh, a few, I would say we might call drivers of the management. So for example, what I mean by driver, that means there are certain ones that are kind of background pests and you might not worry about them, but then there are others that really take off and you gotta control them. And when you control them, you also control the background ones. So they're not really driving the program, but they, but they get hit, they get treated with an insecticide application that's meant for like the real bad ones. And there's a couple of really important ones with these crops. And the first one I thought we might start with mm -hmm. um, are a pest they both have in common and it's early season. And it's the seed corn maggot, which I got a picture up here on the screen of uh, corn seed uh, that's fairly exploded on the left. Uh, and then on the right, some uh, bean seedlings that are also infested with this little maggot called the seed corn maggot. What can you tell us? Can you tell us a little bit more about the seed corn maggot? Yeah, sure. So seed corn maggots are super common in many different crops, and you will see them flying around. Uh, they look like houseflies. They're maybe a little bit smaller than the houseflies. So if you go out on a sunny day, a lot of the times you will see them just flying around the crop. Um, and that's usually how people notice that they have a seed corn maggot problem, other than the fact that you will start seeing your crop um, the little plants dying because the seed corn maggot larvae are attacking it from underground and they're not very visible at that point. So they're relatively sneaky insects in that they're hard to notice and when you do notice them it's kind of too, too late so to speak. 
A lot of the times, uh, seed treatments are available in both beans and corn uh, to manage them, and then also uh, replanting is another way to manage them. They are attracted to wet and or high organic matter soils, so if you can plant in soils that are well-drained, um, sandier soils that might be able to help. Crop rotation might be able to help. So there's a number of different things that if you know you have this problem, you can do. Um, but yeah, so I guess that's a, that's a short intro. That, that is a really thorough intro. <laughs> You've stolen all my questions. Oh, sorry. No, it's fine. I'll make up more. We'll, we'll get into it more. <laughs> um, you had mentioned seed treatments can be effective for these. And I was wondering, throughout the, throughout the season, especially with beans and corn, sweet corn, there are many plantings. I mean, starting from Dwight, which might be the earliest planting of sweet corn I know of in, in my area, uh, through to the end of July sometimes, just continual seeding of sweet corn. When do you see this pest as being the most, of a, most problem for both these crops? Is there a, like a window where they're, the, where they're bad and other windows when they're not? Yeah, so that's a good point, and I forgot to mention that earlier, is that there is an EnviroWeather model available for this insect, so if you haven't utilized that yet, I would highly recommend it, especially if you have a problem with the insect, to go on to EnviroWeather and figure out when that activity period that Ben is talking about is occurring. These insects have multiple generations a year. They can have up to three generations per year, but only that first one in April, May is the one that's the most problematic one for growers. Uh, later ones are usually not that problematic because the insects are um, mostly active in colder temperatures. And also, I don't know if any of you have ever seen it, when you walk around in your farm, you see flies that are infected with a fungus stuck to the plants. A lot of those are maggots that have become infected later on in the season and have died as a way of natural control by these entomopathogenic fun fungi is what we call them, so fungi that attack that's uh, a insects. big word for, for zombie flies. Zombie flies is what we also call them. So if you see them in your farm, leave them, because that means that the spores are there, yeah. and they're available for next year as well. But unfortunately, they're not very good mm. in cold weather early in the season, so they're not very good at that first generation, which is a huge problem, because that's yeah. where you would like to see them killing the flies, right? Yeah, it's really easy to see this effect she's talking about in onions, um, and I don't know why that is. I think it's probably because the onions are just shorter and the very tips are just, you know, there's not a whole lot of foliage. Yeah. There's a different fly that does the same thing in onions, but later in the season they start to get this fungus. It controls their brain and it makes them climb to the top of the plant that they're on, and then they like explode with spores, and then the spores go poof and they infect other flies. It's really cool. It's really cool. I also see them on weeds we're, we're around dorks. the field. <laughs> we're bug dorks. We I think know, it's really yeah. cool. We, we like these things. But yeah, so if you have weeds around your field or, or higher vegetation where they climb up, you can also see them more prominently there. Um, a follow-up question on the yeah. seasonality of this bug then. So it uh, tends to be an early season pest of importance, though it can have multiple generations. The EnviroWeather model that she was talking about, it's, uh, you can go to MSU's EnviroWeather website if you haven't, didn't know what that meant. And essentially it's like gr growing degree days for crops. Insects run on temperature 
some insects run on temperature exactly like crops do. And if you can track the average temperatures of the days, then you can tell when a bug is going to turn into an adult or when it's going to lay eggs or mate or whatever. And that's the kind of model that this pest sort of runs on. I think it's, uh, I don't remember what the base temperature is, 40s or something like that? Yeah, it's somewhere in the 40s. So it starts developing earlier than, I would say, the large majority of insects, which is... 50 Fahrenheit is where m the majority of insects start developing, but as I said, this insect is really um, thriving in colder temperatures, so Can it will start little, developing little early. To the mic? Uh, okay. Yep. Sorry. Um, uh, there was another thing I wanted to say. Oh, so if you go to the EnviroWeather website, the cool thing is that you can see the prediction for when the main flight, so to speak, is going to happen. So when the majority of insects are flying and mating. And so you will get a message from EnviroWeather that says, you know, a week from now, you're going to see a lot of flies in your field. And therefore, you should plan on making an insecticide application, for example, if you don't have any seed treatment. Uh, that will eliminate the majority of those females that are laying eggs at the time. So that could be a way to use that EnviroWeather information. And, and you know, this is one of uh, some of the insects that we're going to be talking about in the remaining time here today. So um, it's, a really, it's a really cool tool to forecast uh, based on how the development of the insect is happening what's going to be coming up in the near future, and when is the right time for you to not to be wasting the insecticide applications. Yeah, that's a good point. It helps you have time when you can use an insecticide application. Do you think growers could use it uh, uh, as a tool to almost, if they wanted to buy treated seed and non-treated seed, as a way to time which seed they're using at any point in time, treated versus non-treated? I mean, I don't have a ton of experience buying treated and untreated seed. I have had a little bit with cucumbers, and it was really hard to buy untreated seed. Mm. I don't know what experience you have out there when you wanted to have untreated versus treated. I'd like to hear that from others. But from my experience, that one time when we wanted to get untreated seed, it was almost impossible from just, you know, vendors. Okay. Uh, yeah, probably really vendor-dependent and what varieties that you're, you're targeting to. Yeah. All right. Um, any, do, you, do you all have any questions on seed corn maggot before we move on to another group? Yes, James. Can you clarify the flies are laying their eggs on the soil? Yes, that's a good question. So the flies can be laying the eggs uh, right at the base of the plant. So it's partly on the soil, partly on the stems. And then the little larvae usually go down a little bit and then start feeding on the uh, on the roots, um, the the forming roots. So that's why you see the plant like keel over because there is no roots to hold on to it at that point. Or you can do what is on the picture <laughs> there, right? So that's an, that's earlier stage. I don't want to throw a curveball here, but I just noticed on the uh, on those pictures of seeds. Uh, maybe you all can confirm if you're seeing what I'm seeing. It almost looks like there's a coloration to the seed coat, which would make me think perhaps it was treated. Maybe only fun maybe only fungicides and not insecticides. Are you aware of any resistance issues in this pest? No, I'm not aware of resistance issues, but that's a good point is that you want to make sure that when you're buying treated seed, you understand what is on that seed treatment or in that seed treatment because there's a variety of things that can go on into that seed treatment. I don't 
know if people realize that there's a cocktail of pesticides and some of them are gonna be just fungicide treated and multiple modes of actions of fungicides. Some of them are gonna have like multiple fungicide with one insecticide. Some of them are gonna have multiple fungicides with many different insecticides or multiple different insecticides. So depending on the pest that you're trying to control and what your concern is, you might wanna really dig into what your options are and what that seed is really um, coated with. Great point. Yes, sir. Question was about um, how effective are other chemistries, neonics in particular, in the in light of Lohr's ban uh, going away. Yeah. So neonic drenches are going to be able to control, but um, and C treatments as well. Neonics are sold as C treatments as well. So. Um, I think that that is an alternative to Lorisban. There's a few other alternatives that we have been testing that are hopefully going to be registered in the coming years that could uh, um, provide some solution. Um, so I think that there are alternatives. I know that many growers are um, shocked by the fact that Lorisban is going away and it's going to be a problem for the coming years. But yeah, neonics, I think, are an option. Okay. We're switching to uh, another another group of pests here. These are caterpillars, and uh, many of these uh, can get confusing when you're looking at. I mean, whether it's the the worm or the moth, either way, uh, even a trained entomologist can have trouble looking at some of these, especially the corn earworm, because they have very different colorations. Um, anyway, some of these are uh, pests of both beans and corn. Can any of you guess which one? Or which ones? Any ideas? One of them. Western bean, yeah. Uh, fall armyworm, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, Western bean, for sure. It's a problem in corn and beans. And uh, corn borer, sometimes. But uh, yeah, mainly the Western bean's the big overlap one here. I've arranged this slide with pictures of, of each of the larvae, which are the problem-causing parts. I didn't put pictures of the moths up or the eggs, though those can be useful to know, too. And I arranged it, uh, I thought, by some timeline. Maybe I didn't, but uh, the European corn borer tends to be the first thing to look out for um, in the season. And I believe that has an enviro weather model, too. Is that right? Yeah, most of these will have an EnviroWeather model. So um, I should also add that not the majority of these don't overwinter in Michigan, so they are going to be coming up on weather fronts. And there is a thing called uh, insect forecast, mm. and that one actually gives you data from our region. And you can see as the insect is moving its way up north from the south. And that's a great way to find out when you should be setting up traps and when you should be paying attention, uh, which means that you don't have to do trapping, for, for example, for the entire season, only when you start seeing this migration coming up. And for that reason, I would also add that Purdue is a great resource. If you don't sign up for their newsletter, they have a, a vegetable hotline newsletter. I would recommend that you do that because in that, it's a weekly newsletter that gets sent to your email and you can get reports of what's happening. And they are south of us, so you will get the report that they are starting to see some of these migratory pests. Yeah, so the, the migratory ones that I'm aware of, and correct me if I'm wrong, is corn earworm, 
western bean cutworm and fall armyworm perhaps. Mm -hmm. That one migrates as well? Mm -hmm. Okay. So she had mentioned Insect Forecast. That's actually a website, and that's the website, insectforecast.com. And what they have is it looks just like a weather channel report where they've got uh, a picture of the United States and a very simplified set of graphics like you might see in your, like your morning meteorologist report. And they, uh, they kind of tailor it to certain bugs. But the general concept is if you're looking at like the whole country, and I'm going to make this for you over there. So this would be the east coast. This would be the west coast. And we'd be somewhere over here uh, where we're at right now. If you get a high pressure system in the southeast and a low pressure system in the southwest, they wrote their, lar their wind patterns rotate opposite directions. And when they're in that arrangement, they create this funneling effect from the south that grabs things, lifts it up into the higher air column, and throws them up north. And when that air is traveling north, it hits a cold front, everything falls, everything drops. And you, you get essentially an airdrop of every bug that was down there that got carried right where the rain falls, essentially. And you can see it. In, two, uh, in 2018, we saw, I think it was 2018, 2019 perhaps, it was really easy to see a couple of dates in June where cornyworm came in real hard. And it happened to also be one of those, it, it was 2019, because it was the year when we had so much water, in Michigan at least, that field corn acres were way down, prevented plant was through the roof. So the, the only guys with corn on the landscape were the sweet corn growers. And with the only corn on the landscape and two really big flight events that came up from the south via these weather patterns, these pests had nowhere to go but sweet corn. It was an Armageddon of sweet corn, <laughs> or of, uh, of this pet, corn earworm. Yeah. I would add that other insects are using this kind of migration as well. Leafhoppers are one of the notorious ones. So you can't be um, unaware of these weather patterns and what they might cause and bring to your farms. I think it's, it's uh, super important to know the resources and use them wisely and uh, be able to predict when they arrive. So, uh, Sophia, um, what can you tell us about uh, the control of some of these caterpillars in sweet corn. In related, and we talked a little bit about how they can arrive somewhat predictably, sometimes not, but what else should we know about it? Yeah, so one thing that you just mentioned is this issue with the field corn. This relationship between sweet corn and field corn I think is worth touching on because field corn drives a lot of what's happening in sweet corn pest-wise, right? Mm -hmm. So when the, when the field corn is silking, it's such a huge attractor of corn earworm that it basically dilutes out of what's happening in the sweet corn. Like you're not gonna see a ton of corn earworm because everybody's busy laying eggs in the field corn. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's something to think about is like what's going on around your farm? When is your sweet corn silking? When is the field corn silking? What's the relationship there? And then come back and try to understand What's the threat of any of these occurring in your crop? And um, by and large in Michigan, I find that corn earworm is the one that drives pest management in sweet corn. 
So if you know how to manage that, you pretty much take care of all the other ones that are listed here because you have to spray so frequently, unfortunately, for corn earworm. Corn earworm has a very, very particular aspect of its biology. It's very interesting that it will only lay eggs on the silk. It likes fresh silk, so once the silk has gotten old, it doesn't really want to lay eggs anymore. So it lays on the fresh silk and then the little larva that hatches and they can hatch if it's hot out there in a couple of days so it doesn't take very long for the larvae to hatch but then the little larva makes a journey from where it hatched into the tip of the ear through that silk that it was laid on so it makes a little journey it enters the tip of the ear and then it starts feeding right so that's that larva that you find in the tip and they're cannibalistic so when you find one larva in the tip it usually means that you have a cornea worm infestation a lot of these other ones you will find larvae that are entering from the side and there are multiple larvae so if you do see that it means that that's probably not corn earworm, those are some of these other ones. So corn earworm, uh, because of the silk is growing so fast, uh, you always have to have it covered with insecticide. It means that you have to sometimes spray every three, four days to cover that fresh silk. So even though you're spraying really good insecticide that would be able to kill the insect for a longer period of time, if that silk is growing and you mm. have that fresh silk without any insecticide coverage, that's the important thing. Like you need to cover that bit of silk that has grown overnight and is now not covered by the insecticide. So that's why, uh, and, and these contact insecticides are the ones that really work for killing the cornea worm. So you have to use um, things like pyrethroids, although we do know of populations that are pyrethroid resistant, which means that you sp spray your pyrethroid insecticide and the insect is not dying. And that in that situation, there are other options, insecticide options that you might wanna consider, um, yeah. Maybe, maybe I stop there, or do you want me to Yeah, I just I wanted to add a little bit um, and get your take on this, too. Corn earworm, if you didn't know, it has several different names. Um, you may, know, as a sweet corn grower, if that's your only big vegetable crop, you'll, you would know it maybe as corn earworm. Uh, if you also grew tomatoes, you, you may also know it by, as tomato fruitworm. If you grew cotton, you might know it as cotton bollworm. And that last one, I think, is probably most important in as it relates to resistance to insecticides because what we get doesn't overwinter here. It has to be blown up from the south. A lot of cotton acres, a lot of field corn acres down there. Two big crops, two big crops that uh, have a different spray windows than we have, get hit with insecticides before we get to hit them with insecticides. And develop resistance can develop in populations in the south and blow up in different populations from, you know, from the East Coast over to Texas have just different characteristics and you never know what one we're gonna get. And we might just end up with somebody else's resistance problem in any given year. Yeah, exactly. So you may not have caused the resistance, yet you end up with a population that's resistant to pyrethroid. And at this point, we're lucky that they don't overwinter. So what we get, uh, well, maybe, I don't know if that's lucky or not, because I guess we could plan <laughs> on it if we knew they stuck around, but yeah. they don't. Uh, does anybody um, here use drop nozzles, mm -hmm. Dwight? Do you uh, and, I got, and you you back there? Would it, either of you care to describe uh, your experience with those? Well, you can get it right on the ear. You can get it. You can get right on the ear. I got a 24-inch drop nozzle, and then I got a 
They're hitting them on both sides. So you got one drop spraying two directions onto the ears on either side of the row. And you got one on the other area. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And um, how about you? You have some, a similar setup? Yeah. Yeah. So for a, a diverse vegetable grower who's got many different vegetable crops, um, I think that investing in some drop nozzles for one crop, sweet corn, could be maybe something that it's like, oh, well, it's just the one crop. Have you used them in other crops uh, and, and found them to, to work well in those situations too? Or adjusting row spacing so that you can use it in other crops as well? Or do you just have a dedicated sweet corn sprayer, just one for the sweet corn? Yeah, you too over there? Yeah, okay, so a dedicated sweet corn sprayer with drop nozzles and works well for you. Yeah, and I, I will add that a lot of the times that's what's not working for growers when they can't control corn earworm. It's because of the coverage. They're just not getting good coverage on the ears. And so we always encourage those people that before you jump to the conclusion that these are resistant, you test whether you are getting the ear covered with water-sensitive cars. You can staple them to the leaves that are near the ears or to the ears themselves and go over it with the sprayer, and then if the water-sensitive car usually turns blue or whatever color it indicates, then you know that you have good coverage. But it's a cheap and foolproof way to test if the problem is with the coverage. Did anybody here use air blast sprayers for their sweet corn? Yeah? Okay, uh, how, how have you felt about their performance in the, in the corn? On a windy day, uh, we were putting you have to put a lot out, but uh, we felt like it acts more like a shotgun than a rifle. And we like how it peppers the plants. Yeah. How, and how many rows are you hitting in one direction? Twelve rows? Have you ever done this water-soluble paper thing? Yes, we have. Yeah? And, uh, and we felt okay about it. <laughs> we, we, we really thought we used it to determine that we needed a higher gallonage, and uh, so that's how we sort of calibrated it. And we think that some of it goes off target, but we felt like there was such high pressure that it was okay. Okay. Uh, I, I had a colleague who did, who he collaborated with a grower and set up some water-soluble water paper. Uh, I don't remember how many rows in. It was a 12-row setup like what you got there, and I think he put them in the first row sixth row and the twelfth row perhaps and he did tassel silk and then I think a one of the basil leaves and then he lined them all up and it it seems like the adjustment of an air blast sprayer is really important so that you're not like vaulting over the middle section or just like hitting the first row really hard but the middle it seemed like it was really hard to get like row six at the silk seemed difficult to get have you what do you think of that uh, row 12 okay <laughs> Yes, sir. Uh, on the drop nozzle, you should have about 125 PSI. 125 PSI on the drops? On the drops, yeah. Okay. Okay, good to know. Um, did you want to talk about BT varieties at all? Well, I think we were going to put it to the audience because I don't know who is interested in BT corn here. Anybody here use BT varieties or interested in knowing about them? Yeah? You use them or you want to know about them? Either one? All right. So, so sweet corn, being the little red-headed stepchild of the field corn industry, has some GMO varieties, okay? Um, 
same species as field corn. Field corn's been GMO for a few years, uh, more than a few years. And so as the technology uh, gets cheaper, it's been bred into sweet corn. And you probably understand a lot of the GM crops are primarily available in the highest acreage crops so that the companies have the best chance of return because it's an extremely expensive process to develop and all that. So it's starting to trickle down into some of, um, some of the specialty crops, sweet corn being one of them. And uh, so it, it's effective, um, especially on late season corn earworm, but, for, but another big but here, the, because corn earworm is a pest of cotton and field corn, there's, there's GM cotton and there's GM field corn with the same uh, traits that kill corn earworm that we have in sweet corn. And those have been around a lot longer. So uh, down south where you've got perennial populations of corn earworm, both in field corn and cotton, resistance has formed just like to insecticides. They're resistant to the resistance in corn. They've like overcome it. These are genetically modified to have, you know, bug killing properties and the bugs have overcome them. There's uh, several sets uh, or like series of varieties that um, I can briefly explain here. There's the uh, Seminus series, which is called the Performance series. And they've got a whole set of yellows, bicolors, whites. It has two proteins, and you'd, I guess you'd think about a protein as like an ingredient in an insecticide. The protein is the ingredient that does the work. This has two ingredients, so it's like a premix, okay? If anybody uses a premix insecticide, you know what I mean. It's got two ingredients in it. So these, this Seminus Performance series has two ingredients premixed to help against corn earworm. Um, and both of them have documented resistance in various parts of the United States. So may or may not work in some years. Syngenta has a few series, a few separate series of varieties. They've got one called Attribute 1, and it has a whole big set of bicolor, yellow, white, SH2, synergistic. And it only has one protein or one ingredient that has this insect killing ability. And it is also one, it's the oldest one, and so that one's got a lot more documented resistance in various parts of the country. And not just to corn earworm, but also to, I believe, European corn borer as well. So that one's getting a little, a little old. It probably wouldn't be the best choice if you had to use a BT variety. I might not do those. Uh, the Attribute 2 series is it's got two actions, it's got two proteins, two ingredients. It's got that super old one that I just mentioned, and it's got one of the newest ones. And it's the only one anywhere that is still effective across the entire United States. It's called VIP3A. That's the important one. That's the ingredient, that's the protein that's still active on corn earworm and like almost everything else, including western bean cutworm. The other proteins that have been developed don't work on western bean cutworm, and they never like developed resistance to it. It just simply never worked on them. But this VIP3A, this one, it does. It's a pretty good one. So Syngenta Attribute 2 series has that. Now there's a little hiccup. I don't know if you heard about this, maybe two years ago, there was some, in addition to having the insect killing proteins, the GM sweet corns also have some herbicide resistance built into them. Um, Roundup readiness, and the other one is called Liberty Linked. And a couple of years ago, 
there was an issue with the Attribute 2 series. There was a couple of varieties. They were supposed to be both Roundup Ready and Liberty Linked, and they found in one season something, something was up, and two of the varieties were, ended up not being Roundup resistant, and, uh, and there was some damage. Uh, so they had to quick, they had to, you know, pivot, and they changed the name to, of those varieties to Attribute Plus. So they're basically the same as Attribute 2, in terms of what kind of insect control they have, but they're only Liberty Linked. They're not both Roundup Ready and Liberty Linked. So just a little little difference there that came, a little wrinkle over the last couple of years. And that, that's the info I have on that. I also have, I didn't print a bunch, I'm sorry, but I have a little cheat sheet with like all the varieties I'm aware of up here if you'd like to look at it. It's called the, the Handy BT Trait Table. So uh, the fellow back there who's, raised his hand. If you want to come look at that, you're welcome to. Was there any other questions you had for Sophia or anything you want to add, Sophia? Yeah, I just wanted to add to that, that the way that you notice that there is resistance to the BT traits in particular is that when you open up uh, the tip of the ear, you still see a larva in there, but it's very small. It's stunted in growth. Oh. Um, so that's hmm. when you, that's the giveaway that there's you know, not very good resistance anymore um, of the plant to the insect. And so at that point, you have to like start then combining sprays with the BT. Uh, it can get quite traits. expensive. And it can get quite expensive because these are not cheap seeds to begin with. Yeah. And then the other thing that I was going to add is just from experience, um, I know that you need to check with whoever you're selling the corn to that they're okay with the GM corn before you buy the seed. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. That's why I, we asked you all because I'm, I'm, I'm well aware that your markets really dictate what you can grow in most, uh, I, I don't know, most, I don't think I'm going out of, on a limb on that. I would say most farm markets, your customer might say, is this GMO? And they, they don't want it to be. And so a lot of growers are like, I, I just don't get into that. It's expensive and my customers don't want it. And some other uh, of you may not have that problem. And so these could be a, could be a tool. Uh, the growers I know who do use it, and maybe some of you are out there, uh, be, because they're more expensive, would uh, only buy the seed for the latest plantings, which mm -hmm. would have the most pressure late in the season. That's how I've seen them used best. All right, James had a question. If he was using a BT sprayable product like Dipel or something like that, and the, and the corn earworm was resistant to one of these proteins that's bred into the corn, would he notice a cross-resistance to the sprayed BT? I don't know. I don't know either. I doubt it, I doubt it because they're different, completely different species, and you're not... Uh, with the spray BT, you're actually spraying the entire, like, bacillus, essentially, and with the... The traits that are in the corn, that's not, not the entire bacillus. It's just a piece, a protein that's oh. uh, made by bacillus. So um, I think that they're just rather different, but I may be wrong. Okay, any other questions for the good of the order before we close out? We haven't even touched on trapping. Which, Dang. Which I'm very, very sorry about, but go ahead. What's up? Yeah, let's not get ahead of ourselves. There was something about trapping. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it is four o'clock though. Maybe I I it up. It is four if it's four o'clock, then we should. Okay. Wrap we're gonna it up. we're gonna wrap up.
Okay, have a good expo, everybody. That was a live rebroadcast from the Succotash session at the Great Lakes Expo back in December in Grand Rapids, Michigan, on the Vegetable Beat podcast here. Later on this spring, we're putting together a set of pre-recorded podcasts. We're not don't, we're not going live this year. We've got a few themes and interesting things that we're really excited to bring you. So stay tuned for that later on this spring at glveg.net slash listen.